Episode 4 seeks to answer the question, why is it hard to design algorithms for quantum computing? Topics covered include quantum supremacy, some of the hurdles regarding working with qubits, as well as a preliminary dive into Shor's and Grover's algorithms to talk about what quantum computing can really do. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Morning, Cyprian. Today we're talking about the algorithms and why it's hard to design a quantum computing algorithm. But, but I think the first thing we should address is quantum supremacy. You want, mind telling everybody what quantum supremacy is? Well, that's, that's a topic that you hear a lot. That's a, a term that you hear a lot. And unavoidably, you see a lot of companies playing in the field claiming that they are very close or they have already reached quantum supremacy. In a nutshell, quantum supremacy is the claim that a quantum computing algorithms can solve a given problem in a significantly shorter time than a classical computing algorithm can do. And when we talk about significantly shorter times, we talk about times that are an order of magnitude shorter, like if there's something that takes, say, 10 years or 50 years or 100 years for a classical computer to solve, then in the context of quantum supremacy, a quantum computer would take like seconds to solve that problem. Right. So what we see is if a quantum computer could only be twice as fast as a classical computer, then we should just wait 18 months and then the classical computer will probably be faster. So it needs to be a really big speed up. It needs to be a really big advantage to deal with all the millikelvin and the and the the all the idiosyncrasies of quantum computing. Otherwise, classic computing is good enough. And so, what I've seen is we're looking for an exponential speed up, like you said, years. Um, but even something where it's it takes a classical computer months to do, but a regular a quantum computer could do it in in a minute. That would be enough to justify the expenditure. But if it's only a linear in, increase or even a, a, a multiplier increase, it's probably not, it's not quantum supremacy. Um, so there's lots of talk about this when you first get into quantum about, you know, how to establish it, what it is. And, and it has, as you said, become a bit of a marketing football. Um, so it's it's really the the goal. If we can't get quantum supremacy, then we really shouldn't be best messing with these super cold um, materials because there's easier ways to to add numbers together. Yeah, yeah. And the the key word that you mentioned here, Patrick, is is exponential, right? One of the core promises of quantum computing is an actual exponential increase in computing capacity, which is the only one that allows us to crack processes like natural processes, like the evolution of systems of atoms, of systems of proteins, and, and so forth. That's, that's where the, the true power of, of quantum computing uh, relies. And there has been a lot of discussion around what is that number of qubits that can exhibit quantum supremacy, and you hear numbers like 50 or 60 or 70 or 72 and, and so forth, right? What's, what's very important to understand here is for our audience 
is that you're not only talking about numbers in quantum supremacy, you're talking about a number of qubits that are simultaneously in a stable state for a long enough time for those computations to occur. And just to be uh, very accurate here, a long enough time here doesn't measure in minutes or even seconds or even milliseconds. It, it measures in much, much shorter amounts of time. But still, keeping a system of tens or hundreds of qubits stable at the same time for even a very short amount of time is still a very, very difficult task today. Yes, what you're talking about is something we have to get into later today, and that is the error rate. Error rates are enormous um, in, in quantum computing currently, and they're probably going to stay that way, which means you need more qubits so that you um, can deal with that error noise. Um, so there's, a, there's an algorithm called the Deutsch-Josa, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm actually saying that correctly, Deutsch-Josa algorithm. And my understanding of it is it, it demonstrates quantum supremacy um, even with the computers that the quantum computers we have now, because it shows that an algorithm can be run that is exponentially faster on a quantum computer than on a classic computer. And I've seen this run. I've run this on the IBM um, system myself, and it it is a useless algorithm other than to show that it doesn't do anything of of use. It's a fairly um, mathematical exercise. But doesn't that show us that this doesn't that prove that there will be scenarios with even mathematics, even with um, uh, calculations of functions where we'll get quantum supremacy. Isn't that where the promise comes from? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a promise. But you know, there's always a big difference between promise and, and confirmation, right? And again, um, it all boils down to the capacity of the players in the field to build systems that provide a good enough or a large enough number of stable quantum computing qubits because yes the the deutsch rosa algorithm and all the others some of them which we'll discuss later uh, today they can be demonstrated on small number of qubits like mm -hmm. on let's say three qubits or four qubits or five six qubits which are uh, still within the capabilities of simulation uh, and when I say simulation is they can be simulated with existing classical computing. So you can demonstrate how those algorithms would, would work. But think about another algorithm that we'll touch later today, the search algorithm, right? If you demonstrate the search algorithm in uh, on a system with three qubits, you would just demonstrate that you can perform search on a space with two at the power of three, which means eight potential elements or, or states. While that's very cool from a theoretical perspective, from a practical point of view, that's basically nothing, right? Yeah. So when we talk about quantum supremacy, we also need to, to take into account the practicality, right? It's not only about showing that, yes, theoretically, there is a possibility to do this, but it's about showing that for very practical problems, you can actually use quantum computing to solve problems in an exponentially faster time than a classical computer would need to achieve the same result. Right. So let's talk about, uh, there's a few things that we need to unpack here. Um, let's talk about 
the next big thing, which is um, how do we get there and, and, and how close are we? So a lot of what we're hearing now is, oh, we have this many qubits or we have this many qubits. But you need a lot of qubits, as you said. You need more than 50. Uh, you probably need thousands or millions to take on real problems. Um, because of the error rates, because of the, uh, the, 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 some of the issues you talked about. Let, let's dive into that. Um, in order to actually perform a useful search, because we have a search algorithm in the form of Grover's algorithm, um, we'd need a lot more qubits than we have. And the problem seems to get harder the more you add. It's like a Jenga tower. It's easy to, easy to do 20, uh, 10 layers or 20 layers, but when you get to 50 layers, it's almost impossible for it to stay standing. So what are the challenges here for getting more qubits with the players that we currently have? Yeah, I think I think you 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 absolutely nailed that that problem statement, Patrick. It's real problem is getting the qubits, and uh, even more importantly, it's getting the logical qubits, not the physical ones. That's an important distinction that we need to to make. As um, a logical qubit, which is let's call it an, a qubit that behaves in an ideal way. Today, unfortunately, can only be obtained by using a fairly large number of physical qubits, and that's simply because those physical qubits are highly unstable, and error correction basically significantly uh, reduces um, the the number of logical qubits that can be obtained from from physical ones. Uh, at some point, I think uh, that was a year ago or something. You would need around uh, between a thousand and ten thousand physical qubits to be able to create one logical qubit. And all algorithms in quantum computing, just to be very clear on that, they need to work with with logical qubits. So the ones that are like ideally stable. So in our past episodes, we've talked a lot about qubits, and we've discussed the individual properties mm. of, of of qubits right which yeah. it's it is a great talk in itself but we need when we talk about algorithms we really need to understand that qubits are our building blocks right one is great to have but in order to be able to build algorithms you need as you said you need to have tens hundreds uh, thousands potentially yeah. tens of thousands of them yeah so it's like we've been talking about atoms but we really need teaspoons full and you have to wrap your head around the fact that there's a whole lot of atoms in a teaspoon of anything. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. So, and uh, uh, the, the big problem here is, uh, for folks who have listened to our previous episodes, is that severely limited capability of, of, of reading and understanding the state of, of qubits. Like, it's very difficult to do it with one. It's exponentially more difficult to do with many. Yeah. So when we hear that IBM has 53 qubit systems, those are logical qubits or do you think those are physical qubits? No, those are those are definitely logical ones, right? They are behind the scenes they are employing uh, an orders of magnitude larger number of, of physical qubits, but as I said, those are just too unstable and you need right. a lot of them to actually get like the equivalent of 
what you said, 53 logical qubits. So if they working. can bring down, so if they can bring down their error level, if they can bring down the noise level, they can have more logical qubits with the same or lower number of physical qubits, which is why the engineering is a big part of this. Yeah, and that's actually uh, by some in the field, it's considered the equivalent of of Moore's law, right? We all know Moore's law in classical computing, where uh, every 18 months, the, the computing power doubles, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the kind of uh, an equivalent or a projection of that of that law would be that the, the error rate in quantum computing measured in number of physical qubits uh, that logical. are needed, yeah, that are needed to create logical qubits, that error rate is uh, significantly decreasing with every... 12 to, to 18 months. So that would be kind of the equivalent of what we have in, in classical computing. So I haven't, I haven't actually heard that before. Is, is that actually the case? Are we seeing that level of progress? It seems like we are based on what I'm seeing from uh, the major players' announcements of new qubits levels. Yes, yes, we, we, we do see that. That's exciting. Uh, especially if we look like, um, well, there is a big difference. Like, the evolution is highly non, uh, let's say, non-linear, right? Like, like in in classical computing, what you see is kind of like this constant growth yeah. over maybe the past two decades. With quantum computing, is much more fluctuating. But if you're looking like uh, even three to five years ago, you would need in the hundreds of thousands of physical qubits just to simulate a logical one for a tiny fraction of time. As of today, we're already in the realm of a thousand physical ones re, uh, required for a logical one. And even in some cases, they have gone, gone down to uh, a few hundreds, if, if uh, even less than, than that. Mm. So, yes, we do see improvement. What concerns me, though, Patrick, is that the scale at which we see that improvement is not very encouraging, right? Like mm. um, it's the equivalent of Moore's law, but somehow the the ex- exponential part uh, for me still seems to be missing. So I, it's I not it's- like we we can project that in ten years from now we'll need like five physical qubits to uh, handle one logical qubit. Yeah, I think it's because it's it's a multi-dimensional problem. It's it's errors as well as um, the numbers we need just to do the calculations. Because even even if we could do one-to-one, um, like one logical to one physical, <clears throat> we still probably don't have systems big enough to take on some of the really big problems that we want to take on with quantum computing. They haven't arrived um, in that regard. Thank you for listening to Entangled Things. Here's a word from our sponsors. This week's episode is sponsored by Pulsar Security. Introducing Sonar, Wi-Fi security as a service. With Wi-Fi being available in most corporate networks, it is imperative companies know what devices are broadcasting within range or authenticating to the corporate network. With Sonar, you'll receive alerts, monthly reports, and access to our team to uncover and help fix your Wi-Fi security weaknesses. Sonar, protect your data. Visit sonar.pulsarsecurity.com entangled to learn more. Let's talk about something <clears throat> tangential. The, the biggest hurdle um, 
to dealing with this is the limited insights into the state of a qubits. Because as I was hinting at just a second ago, you don't just calculate things once. You have to calculate them multiple times, which means it's it's not as simple as, oh, I just have to get the error rate down. I have to get the error rate down, and then I still have to measure it a hundred or a thousand times to get the probability to then have confidence in my prediction. And so I know there's there's certain things that you've do- talked about as far as different gates that you can use and different me- mechanisms you can use where you gain insights into the states of the qubits without actually reading them. You infer the state by doing entanglements and then reading the entangled partner rather than the, the first one. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Yeah, sure. So that is actually the the big challenge and also the place where like the creativity of humankind needs to to jump in because due to the fact that you simply cannot uh, measure the state due to the fact that it collapses, right? You need to come up with some very ingenious ways in which um, you would drive up a quantum computing system towards a state that will actually allow you to infer something about the the the, the result, right? Yeah. And so let's so start with before, a yeah, sure. I'm, go I'm ahead. Sorry, let me interrupt just for a second. So, so what I want to give people an envision of, especially if they haven't been listening uh, to prior episodes, is imagine every qubit's inside a fortune cookie, and in order to know what its state is, you have to break the shell. And once you break the shell, it's no longer a functioning qubit. So you have to start over again with building its state to the right location. And so reading it is a destructive event, effectively. Is that a yeah. good enough analogy? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. In fact, I, I, I have a, an analogy of my own. Oh, those are uh, always about, good. Uh, about, about that, right? So um, just, just imagine that, that, that you, Patrick, are, um, have this capability of, of positioning yourself anywhere on the surface of, of Earth, right? And... My task is to determine your 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 position. Where's Waldo, if you will? So yeah. So <laughs> the the rule is right. Uh, the, the rule is that I can let's say call you over the, the 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 cell phone, and then what will happen is every single time I call you over the cell phone by some magic thing, what will happen is you will get teleported to either the North Pole. Or the South Pole, and I do have two satellites that are monitoring the North and the South Pole, and I can see whether you ended up in the North or the South Pole, right? So imagine that one in in one of these iterations, you position yourself right in the middle of your house, right? I'm calling your cell phone, and the moment I call you, you get teleported to the North Pole. I see you there, right? And then. The next time you position yourself again in your own house, I call you, you get teleported to the South Pole, and so forth. If I call you, and if we repeat all this process uh, a high enough number of times, I will probably be able to get a hint of where, where between the North and South Pole you are, right? So, so most if- probably I, I, I will be able to... To, to have an idea on which side of the equator you are and how far of the equator uh, uh, you are. But that's so to, about it. 
So to understand this analogy, and I get where you're going with this, if I was standing somewhere on the equator, then every if you checked 100 times, half the time I'd be at the North Pole, half the time I'd be found at the South Pole, you would conclude I was at the equator. If I was in uh, New Hampshire, in the Northern Hemisphere or, or Sweden, somewhere up north, then most of the time, the majority of the time, I'd end up at the North Pole. And only some of the time would I end up at the South Pole. And you'd infer my location, my latitude from that percentage, from that, 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 that random element, that probability. Exactly. But what's even more interesting is that if you think about a latitude like, like a circle, right? The, the largest uh, circle would be the equator. And then those latitude circles are getting progressively uh, smaller as you move towards the North Pole or the South Pole, right? Mm -hmm. I would be able to place you on one of those circles, but I wouldn't know where, where on, on circle. that circle you are. So I would only know like you're on the equator, but you could be somewhere, I don't know, in Africa, or you could be somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, and I would have no way to understand where on that circle uh, you are. And I think that's a pretty accurate image of how measurement... That's the manifestation of the uncertainty principle. Even though you're measuring, you can't know everything. Exactly. So the, the, the problem with, with designing algorithms is that at the end of the day, um, measurement is, is not the solution, right? Imagine that you need to do this uh, so many times for one qubit. Now, if you were to resolve a practical problem, let's say with 100 qubits, right? We would then imagine that we, we have like 100 planets like the Earth, and we would need to repeat that for every single planet. So you can uh, see how quickly this becomes something that's, that's basically um, unusable. So this is where um, the, a thing that constantly amazes me, which is the, 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 the collective kind of capacity of, of the human brain uh, to, to create like, like um, solutions to seemingly very, very difficult problem, problems uh, kicks in. And mm -hmm. this is where some of the principles of, of the algorithms in quantum computing lie. And, and that principle or one of those principles is that we actually should not measure, right? At, right. at first, this sounds like, whoa, like, like what are you thinking about, right? How would you implement an algorithm without knowing the state? Well, it turns out that there are ways in which you can take your hundreds or thousand qubits, um, initialize them into a known state, like, for example, put all Patricks on those hundred planet Earth um, on the equator. And then there are ways in which you can influence the way that system evolves in time. So you would move the different Patricks on the surfaces of those planets in a way that after a number of steps, a solution will emerge. And with a single measurement, with the result of a single measurement, you will be actually able to infer the solution of the problem. I don't want us to get into more 
detail than than this because it becomes very quickly very difficult. Yeah. But I think the principle is 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 amazing, right? Like we, you initialize your system in a known state, then you apply pressure on that system to evolve in several steps. And it can be mathematically proven that after a number of steps, there is a high probability that the system will reach a solution. Yeah, the, the, the probability of the solution approaches one, which means all other things are canceled out. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, which it, which is, is for, for me, is, is absolutely fascinating, even at this very general level, right? Without even getting into, into the details. The fact that you can you can actually do this for me is is absolutely amazing. It's one of the things that amazes me about quantum computing. So my understanding is the thing that and, the, and this is probably the last analogy before we move on to some of the actual algorithms. Um, if you think about quantum computing like classical computing, with classical computing, if you have a bit and you want to flip the bit, you just magnetize it or demagnetize it depending on what you've read it to be, and the the, the easy thing about classical computing is that you can just read the value and you can read it again and you can read it again. And it's always the same until you change it. That's not the case as you described. But one of the things that allows quantum computing and quantum gates in particular, the manipulation of these qubits is that the, the name quantum computing comes from the fact that these are quantum elements. These are quantum items. If, if you add the, the requisite energy, the system moves to its next phase its next stage and if you think about it as a position on you know on the globe if i add enough energy you'll end up on the opposite side of the globe and exactly. so and i know how much i know how much energy that is we we know that from science and so the the gates we're talking about are ways of saying <clears throat> wherever that bit is pointing i want it flipped to the opposite side of the globe or i want it to move um down towards the equator by 45 degrees because I can control how much energy I put into that qubit. And so that's the model of how all these gates are created. And they've effectively created every gate, every basic gate, XOR, NAND, all those things that we have in classical computing, but applied them to the qubit. And that's what you're talking about. That's, that's the manipulations that you're getting at. Yep. Yep. And where things become really important is when you extrapolate this from a single qubit to multiple qubits, right? Think about about it like 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 this. So the outcome for measuring one qubit can have two values, like oversimplifying a zero or a one, right? Mm -hmm. When you have two qubits, you have four outcomes. Three qubits eight outcomes, right? With 10 qubits, you can actually get uh, 1,024 outcomes and, and, and so forth. It's two at the power of, of the number, of, of, the number of, of, of qubits. So basically, when you start solving more complex problems, right, this exponential increase in the number of states that you can get out of, out of measurement is is one of the of the huge powers in in quantum computing like think about search right if if you need to search in a database let's say with eight records those eight records can be modeled as eight different states you would need three qubits mm -hmm. to do that modeling right 
Yes. But if you need to search in a database with a hundred, a thousand and twenty-four um, records, you would need ten qubits, and so forth. Like, think about it. If if like the uh, number of qubits is let's say thirty-two, you are already able, for instance, to search in a database that has two at the power of thirty-two records. Add just a couple more qubits. And you're already surpassing any size of any known database in terms of numbers of records. So being able to search in, in, in that space with what at the end of the day is a fairly limited number of qubits is, is, is a great achievement, right? Right. So in future episodes, we're going to have to dig into things like interference and the, the, some of the tricks and techniques. But if you don't mind, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and start talking about the the two most famous algorithms one we've mentioned in prior episodes and the one you mentioned at the beginning of this episode first being factorization through shor's algorithm um and peter shor is a, a professor at mit currently um and the search algorithm uh known as grover's algorithm so shor's algorithm let me start there because that's the one of most interest to me as a security guy um and then i'll let you talk more about shor's because uh Grover's because you know far more about it than I do. <clears throat> so the, the idea with Shor's algorithms is, is figuring out how to do the hard bit of mathematical factorization um, in a quantum computer, not so that it can decrypt data, but so that it can break the hard part of the key and let the quantum computer, uh, the classical computer do the rest. So Shor took a big problem. Okay, you you're communicating. Let's say Cyprian, you're communicating with someone using a public-private key, and that public-private key um, is something I want to break. Now, in order to do that with a classical computer, I have to um, take samples of your encrypted data, and I have to try to um, either break it with brute force by just making up keys, which is probably not possible uh, given the size of these keys. Or I can try to do a factorization attack, which is also a, a not practical on a classical computer. And by that, what I'd be doing is I'd be getting the public key because everyone's allowed to see the public key. And I'd then be trying to reverse engineer that number that because effectively the public key is a big random, uh, a big prime number. And I'd try to calculate what other prime number could be used to create the cipher and that would be your private key so i'm basically trying to guess your private key by by doing factorization i only know one number the public key i don't and i'm simplifying this quite a bit um and that's a very hard thing to do on a classical computer it takes it takes hundreds of years centuries even with the most powerful computers and that's why we use it for cryptography but but Schwarz figured out how to use qubits to factor those numbers much more quickly, to do that, that, that root work. Now, if Shor's algorithm were used to factor a large prime, then when it came out with the result, we could instantly check it with a classical computer. And so we don't need to, to do anything other than getting that factorization. And so far, it's been demonstrated that it can factor the number 15 effectively. Now that's not very impressive, but it's the taste. It shows that it's an actual working algorithm. Um, 
if we can get Shor's algorithm to scale up, then all encryption that uses public-private key is under threat. It could be decrypted. And so that's why that's the, the most exciting um, algorithm. I guess I'll call that my favorite algorithm. And, and what's your favorite algorithm? Well, it's it's certainly um, I, I have a, a list of, of, of favorite <laughs> algorithms, and That's and no this fair. one is clearly yeah, it's clearly um, uh, among them. What I would like to add with with what what you've said is um, contrary to popular belief uh, in uh, let's say the world of quantum computing, uh, Shor's algorithm actually does not solve the whole problem of factorization. Right. Right, it actually solves only a, a a small but the most difficult part of 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 that. Right, so in in the theory of numbers, basically the factorization problem can be reduced to something that we call an order finding problem, uh, and that's what Shor's algorithm is is capable of solving. But I would like so to point it out it gives us the ballpark. Exactly. I would like to point out something else which is very, very important. You said at some point, Patrick, that given those outcomes, we can check if they are the result on a classical computer. One of the things that you need to, 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 to be aware and to, to understand very clearly when starting to think about or dealing with quantum computing algorithms is that there is a very clear distinction between finding the solution to a problem and recognizing a solution to a problem. And usually recognizing the solution is, is a fairly simple task, even with classical computing. Finding the solution is where the problem is, right? Like getting back to your right. example, uh, finding a solution would be producing the two prime numbers, right? Recognizing the solution would be checking if those two prime numbers are actually a solution to the problem. So that, that's, that's a very important thing. And what, the, the reason I'm introducing this concept is because it becomes even more important in, in the other algorithm that is on my favorite list, which is the search algorithm, right? So as of today, if you are searching uh, for a, a solution that, by the way, you know how to recognize, so you are searching for a solution in... Uh, let's say, a space of N potential candidates, the best that you can do um, with uh, classical computers is a complexity that depends on that number, right? So it's directly dependent on, on, on the number of items in which you search. So, for example, let's take a very, very simple um, kind of... Uh, uh, problem from that that case, you have like a hundred um, uh, uh, little handwritten notes with numbers, and you want to find the note which contains number two, right? You know that that those notes contain like all the numbers from one to a hundred, and you just need to find they are all let's say put in a bowl, and you need to find the note that contains the number two, like. Recognizing the solution means you are looking at a little piece of paper and you are checking whether it contains the number two or not, right? Right. Finding the solution is extracting the right piece of paper from that, from that bowl. And, and Grover's algorithm or the search algorithms 
uh, is an algorithm that uses quantum computing to reduce that time from an order of magnitude that is directly proportional to the number of items through which you search. It reduces that to an order of magnitude that is proportional to the square root of the number of items that you are uh, searching. Now, this is not uh, aligned with the promise of exponential increase, right, provided by quantum computing. Right. But, but in practical scenarios, like this is, is, is huge. Like imagine that, that, that square root, imagine that with a quantum computer, you could search in a million items as quickly as you would search with classical computing in a thousand of items. So that's still a spectacular improvement. That's why I, I, I like that the quantum search algorithm, also known as Grover's uh, algorithm, uh, a lot. And, and this is why it is on my, my favorite, my list of favorite so, uh, quantum computing algorithms. I thought so. So a question for you about Grover's algorithm, because it, it is one that I haven't nearly de dove into as much. The problem that you've said to me couple of years ago about quantum computing, and I've realized is definitely the case, is you, there's currently no way for a quantum computer to read your data from a database to have its initial configuration. So the, the thing that's always mystified me about Grover's is how does it know what it's searching? Like, for example, if I wanted to search Amazon's catalog for um, something of a certain quality or certain certain aspect how would i how would i find that how would i how would i load that search i guess i guess that comes down to how do you initialize the search algorithm of grover since it can't read classical data yeah that's that's a great question patrick in fact the 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 name of a search algorithm is uh, a little bit improper here because it kind of hints towards the capability of searching in databases. And that's very, very important to state. Grover's algorithm is not a database search algorithm, right? So don't, don't think about Grover's algorithm like something along the lines of select star from uh, a bunch of tables where you have a condition and, and you get a, a, a result, right? But the Grover's algorithm is more like searching in uh, a number of, of, of items, of states, to be more accurate. And then the core, one of the core elements of, of Grover's algorithm is something that we call an oracle, right? An oracle is, is an entity, uh, a piece of code that has that capability of recognizing the solution, right? It doesn't mm. find the solution, it recognizes the solution. So one of the challenges that, that, that there is a, a lot of work going on right now is how do you take real-life problems like the one that you just mentioned and model them in a way that is aligned with what the Grover algorithm requires, with so, what the Grover algorithm needs. So therefore, it wouldn't be appropriate to try to use Grover's currently to search Amazon's database but you might be able to go through all the possible configurations of an ion in order to find the most stable one for a chemical compound. It, it all boils down. It's, it's, it's essentially right. 
it all boils down on what are the capabilities of that oracle, right? Of that part that is capable of, of recognizing the solution and, and how well can you model your real life into a problem that, that basically is about searching into uh, a space of, of, potential, of potential states. And uh, just to be very clear, there is a lot of progress happening in, in that area. And both of these algorithms that we, we, we mentioned today, the, the, the factorization one with Shor's approach and the search with Grover, um, are algorithms that have a very high potential of, of solving uh, real very problems. real problems. Yes, right. yes. Now there's a, <clears throat> I don't know the URL off the top of my head, there's a zoo. Uh, they literally call it a zoo for algorithms. So there's more than just a couple of algorithms, even though we've only heard of a few. Um, some of our listeners may have only heard of three so far, the ones that we've mentioned. Um, but there's actually a, uh, a website should we, we should put it up on the, um, on the page for the, for the podcast for this episode, um, that lets you go and find algorithms in the quantum space, uh, and, and probably also donate your own, uh, create your own algorithms and upload them. But we're probably not there yet. Um, in future episodes, we'll talk about some things like amplitude, amplification and interference and, and gates and some of the more nitty gritty, but we've got to work our way up to that, I think. I think you're referring to quantumalgorithmzoo.org, uh, Patrick. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, that's quite the that's, URL. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a fun URL if you ask me. <laughs> yep. If, if you start searching for quantum algorithm zoo, it shows up right away. Yep, that's correct. Okay. Um, so I think that's that's putting us close to time to wrap up. Anything else you would like to touch on or add, Cyprian? Well, the only thing that I I, I would add is is um, just to uh, kind of uh, coin a term that that our listeners probably have have heard, uh, especially the ones who have already some ongoing interest with quantum computing. I, I mentioned about this this general approach in in quantum algorithms where. You start with a known state, and then through some transformation, you transform the state of your qubits in a way that it end it ends up pointing a potential uh, uh, a potential solution. and And that approach is known as amplitude amplification. That's just to 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 make sure that for those who have already known the term or have heard about this this term just to put it into the context of, of what we have discussed today. And I would just double mm-hmm. down on what you said, Patrick. There is a lot happening on right now in the field of, of researching, proposing new quantum computing algorithms. It's, it's, a, it's a red hot field of, of, of science. There are lots of contributions. There are lots of discoveries happening, some of them still theoretical, some of them also uh, proven with the limited number of uh, systems that we already already have in place with functioning qubits. But all in all, it's the world of quantum computing algorithms is an absolutely fascinating world. That's that's very well said. I think we should leave it there, and we'll see everybody for our next episode. Yep, absolutely. See you all on our next episode.